With all the stresses of life, it can be easy to lose perspective on what really matters. But Heineken believes that life is about being with friends and opening yourself to new experiences, because when you live spontaneously and embrace the unexpected, it's a chance to create new stories and connections. You just have to be open to it. So, enjoy a refreshingly cold, full-bodied Heineken lager today. With its deep golden color, light fruity aroma, mild bitter taste, and a crisp, clean finish. Cheers. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Crack Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ. And I am also, also here to make Tom Hardy movies even better. Or, or in the case of that Venom movie, maybe less bad. I don't know. You have your opinion. Either way, our topic today is all about fun. The topic is theories and headcanons that make movies a thousand times better. So it's all about ways of watching movies and shows that enhance the experience just because you decided to enhance it. You have that power. And when I said headcanon, that's sort of a Tumblr, the blogging service term for something that you just decide is true, even though you know maybe it isn't. And one of my favorite headcanons that I've seen on Tumblr is about Tom Hardy. It is that Tom Hardy is a dog trapped in a human's body. I know that's probably not true. I know it also makes all of his movies more fun. Makes it a bit like the, the way he's physical, the way he's friendly. It's a very good time. Also, in real life, he loves dogs. We're going to footnote a Vanity Fair piece that's a history of his relationship with dogs, which is surprisingly close. Also, that's an extra fun headcanon if you're watching the movie Dunkirk, uh, because then it becomes about a hero dog flying a plane, which is uh, silly and fun. Suddenly you have a whole new movie, and that's kind of the idea today. You can do it with almost any actor, too. Like, a common one is taking Arnold Schwarzenegger and imagining that he is a Terminator in everything. So, right, when he's in other films, he's just researching humanity and also kind of winning us over for future emergencies. We're having a good time. It's going to be a fun episode. Also, the ones I said just now were very silly. These can also be very, very resonant and very, very meaningful. And our guest today is the world champion of both fun and resonant pop culture stuff. I'm joined by Guy Branham. Guy is an incredible comedian. We're going to link his stand-up special, Effable. Uh, you also may know him as a panelist and writer from Chelsea Lately, writing elsewhere for The Mindy Project and Billy on the Street. He's also an actor. He's the host of Talk Show, The Game Show, the host of the pop culture podcast, Pop Rocket, so much stuff. And maybe most relevant to what we're talking about today, Guy has written an incredible book called My Life as a Goddess, a Memoir Through Unpopular Culture. And it's an incredible piece of writing. It's why I thought to bring him on this episode, because I, it is such a meaningful text on uh, his whole life and being a person. And it does it within a lot of times really silly stuff like the second X-Men movie or lots of reality TV. It's really incredible. Guy also has a fascinating life story on his own. He grew up in the red state version of California with a fascinating family and an underappreciated sexual orientation and, and a mind that wished his pop culture and his world spoke to who he was directly. I cannot wait for you to hear the way Guy uh, uses his agency as an audience member to get the stories that he needs and deserves out of shows, movies, and more, because it's something that we all can do. So let's let you hear about it. Please sit back or sit, Tom Hardy, sit, sit, sit. That's a good Tom Hardy. Either way, here's this episode of The Cracked Podcast with Guy Branham. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. 
love your book among your many, many works and things. Uh, it's fantastic. Thank you. I like my book as well. <laughs> it is. It was nice to do something that was just like all me, didn't have to satisfy anyone else. Like it's fun writing for TV shows. It's fun doing stand-up. But it was also fun to do something that didn't have to like stand alone in 60-second chunks or, you know, make a network happy. So it was, yeah. it was fun to write. When you, and you dive very deeply in it in terms of things that happen in the world or your own opinions on things. Well, I do feel self-conscious about the fact that some people have been like, oh, this was not what I was expecting from this book. It's that gay guy from Chelsea Lately. I was expecting funny stories where he vomited on himself as a child. Or, you know, like some people just want like material written down, jokes on jokes on jokes. But I figured this book should feel like I had had two drinks and had cornered you at a party and was making you listen to me talk about something. And I, f I think that I satisfied that effect. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> uh <laughs> Could you feel the sweat coming from the book? No, well, I, I've heard your stand-up album, and you call out sweat in yes. it. So I think I brought that to it, you know what I mean? Good. Like, I just kind of filled that in on my own. Good. Yeah. <laughs> you should. Sweat is a part of me being around you, is um, feeling my, my cloak of humidity. <laughs> then in this way, we are brothers. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> and we're talking today about movies and TV, but especially headcanons and theories and things that make them even better or even okay. more exciting. And, yeah. and one whole chapter of the book, it gets into all kinds of things, but it kind of brings together The Graduate and The Little Mermaid and My Best Friend's Wedding in terms of uh, sort of who should be the protagonist, like who's the main character. Well, and it's also <laughs> a little bit my evolution of an identity as a gay person in a world that doesn't tell stories about gay people, right. you know? But I, I think that all of them really are stories that are just tempting you to not give a shit about the protagonist, you know, in, <laughs> in various ways. And I think of the three of them, My Best Friend's Wedding is the most mature because it is this side character, this sassy gay friend that has been sort of, attempts have been made to copy it in so many rom-coms since, and, and all of them have been pathetic imitations. But the thing is, is like, George is tempting Jules away from this heteronormative rom-com plot. And in the end, that's what happens, is the happily yeah. ever after is a whole lot more ambiguous and uncertain. And that's a queerer story. And George is Rupert Everett's character, and then Jules yes. is Julia Roberts. Yes. I forgot yes. she was named Jules in it. Like, they didn't even, yes. they were like, the character Julia Roberts. Yes. You can't, and, you can't look away from it. You know. And yeah. it really is Julia Roberts <laughs> at the height of her powers. You know, it's hard to, right. it's hard to remember she's only real life 27 at that point in time. Like, it's oh my God. only eight years after. Well, she was so young when she made Steel Magnolias and Pretty Woman. I guess so, Like, yeah. she was like 20. And this is, you know, only like eight, eight years later. But it really was. We, like, knew all of who Julia Roberts was. I mean, I like it when uh, an actor or a particular actress just downshifts into, we all know what I do. You know? <laughs> right. Like Carrie Fisher for the last four decades of her life. <laughs> um, but there was that period of time when, like, with your your soap dish, your drop-dead Fred, when, like, when Carrie Fisher showed up, it was like, all right, she's going to be in four more scenes. She's going to kill all of them. She's pretty much just going to be Carrie Fisher. <laughs> Carrie Fisher is one of my mom's favorite performers ever, and yeah. it's because of both Star Wars and the Blues Brothers, where she oh, yeah. has a flamethrower and destroys a building. I mean, she's so <laughs> young and adorable in the Blues Brothers. Yeah. Like, 
cocaine Carrie Fisher was always the best Carrie Fisher. <laughs> I mean, but pills Carrie Fisher was also very good. Can I tell you about um, my favorite all the romantic comedies people? Oh, please. In 2011, America made two films about people having casual sex who fall in love. I was in one of them. Were, yeah. Uh, I played the the bad uh, photocopy of Rupert Everett in that one. Um, but there was another one with Mila Kunis um, where uh, Woody Harrelson paid, played the bad photocopy of Rupert Everett, which is a mistake. But the most important thing about uh-huh. that is that Mila Kunis has an opening monologue that she delivers while walking – to a African-American friend who then shows up in no other part of the movie. We had come to a point by 2011 that everyone knew the tropes of romantic comedy enough that it's like, you put a woman of color next to her and we understand that that is probably her roommate. And she talks (laughs) to that person and then that person goes away. And there is nothing else from her in the entire movie. And it is just so reflective of like how objectifying and operationalizing of... uh, (laughs) non-white and beautiful best friends yeah. in rom-coms. Well, they're like, they're like the engine of a car or something at this point, right? Like, we yeah. know what 10 things go in. Exactly. And they'll put it together, and then it goes. But I feel like that's why people fell out of love with romantic comedies. And I, I like that Netflix is trying to breathe some life back into them. But I think it will also take some ingenuity and some surprises. All of those Katherine Heigl movies were the same movie over and over again. And as far as that romantic comedy element of there is a gay character is is Rupert Everett in My Best Friend's Wedding kind of the the first trendsetter there as as far as big American ones putting someone in like that? Yeah. I mean, in my book, I kind of talk about the way that in movies, gay people between 1983 and 1997, our representation really shifts. Like before 1983, we were nefarious characters or weird broken characters. And then come 1983, you have the specter of HIV and gay people exist to be sad. And you kind Mm. of have uh, George Carlin in The Prince of Tides, which isn't a rom-com. He is sort of like occupying that role and you sort of are are feeling it. And then like George really comes out as this – non-tragic, sophisticated figure who is, like, helping and informing and trying to encourage our heroine to grow. And then you start seeing more sassy gay friends showing up just as comic relief. And it it is really interesting because I remember an English grad student explained this to me when I was, like, 20, and it, like, horrified me. But the realization that, like, comedy ends with a heterosexual couple getting together and the specter of a baby and like gay <laughs> like pe- comedy, like classical Aristotelian yeah. comedy. Like yeah. in the, I mean, if you look at any Shakespeare comedy, it ends with couples getting together and marriages yeah. and maybe a baby and, and the specter of a baby. And the thing is because gay people can't give you the specter of a baby, you don't know what permanence is. You like, why is this happy ending an ending, you know? Um, right. Where's the last step? How do we even do it? Right. Yeah. And I think that for that reason, and also just like, sort of like our lack of willingness to see gay people as people who have like their own interests, <laughs> gay men, particularly in rom-coms, end up becoming an accessory that our woman wears. A 28th dress, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> Right, it's like a periodic table of Katherine Heigl. Like, we know the elements are out there. We just need to find them, you know? Yeah. The recency with which, like, just how recent it is. Is recency a word? Just how recently it. it was still, like, a 
12 pounds overweight white woman or Judy Greer, who was serving the role of person who stands next to our heroine, is really shocking. Even like sassy woman of color is something we've only really gotten for, you know, since yes, Bush v. Gore. <laughs> <laughs> as far as also this this broader thing of essentially which gay characters to identify with, uh, it seems like uh, there's also just been a process for a long time of just people trying to find someone to identify with who is not explicitly gay in the text, but what else do you do? Right, like that kind of vicarious identification is what gay people are used to, and there are ways that like when we are shown stuff about gay people, we can like pull away. I kind of talk about it in the book, that like there is a discomfort that comes along with that, and it's not that it's easier, we're just more used to the work of having to watch Betty Davis or Lady Gaga or whoever and identifying through a woman or a not explicitly gay, you know, James Domian has a great bit about like Sheriff of Nottingham and Jafar and all of these Disney villains who are coded as gay to show that they are trying to subvert the responsible heterosexuality of our heroes. That being like an aspect of their nefarious evil, their effeminacy or in Ursula's case, masculinity. I actually, I had a course in college. It was just a, like a reading pop culture kind of course. And uh-huh. I did a whole thing where I said, did you know that Ratcliffe, the villain in Pocahontas, is like a coded gay character? And the professor was like, they, they're pretty much all the villains, Al. <laughs> catch up. You know, that's the thing. I don't remember <laughs> anyone from Pocahontas except for Pocahontas and Grandmother Willow. Right. Uh, Radcliffe is like he's it's sort of a pun on Radcliffe like that kind of colonial name Uh, but he's this colonial British person who has an assistant who is is it's sort of a dom sub sort of thing in terms of the power relationship and he's uh, very flouncy and and very like Gaston and LeFou except less mask kind of yeah yeah and and there's just it's I I feel like I'm just listing stereotypes but but it's a lot of the things that Hollywood has used to quote that. Have you seen Waking Sleeping Beauty? Is that what it's called? No, I don't know what that is. It's a documentary about Disney going from the mid-80s to the mid-90s, but it's basically sort of like things tanking with the Black Cauldron and then the way that Katzenberg and Alan Menken sort of like brought things back. And the interesting thing about Aladdin, Little Mermaid, and Beauty and the Beast is that you have... Alan Menken writing these stories, and I think he he had his hands in The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast way way more than anything else. But both of those things are stories about like, you know, even from Ariel's perspective, The Little Mermaid is a very interesting queer story from like having to give up where you're from to go sort of like experience a mature life that doesn't make sense to the people where you're from. And oh yeah, I never I never thought of that element of it. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Belle just being sort of like not fitting into the gender norms of of what was expected of a woman in this small provincial life, <laughs> the I, town where she tells everyone it's they're too provincial for uh, her in a very loud song. I identify yeah. with I, like I really enjoy <laughs> that. Belle is not my favorite Disney princess because she is fundamentally boring. I am an Ariel man through and through. Nice. I love her. When I'm thinking of like, oh, what's a fascinating theory that makes a, a piece of fiction work better for me? A lot of times it's just like fixing flaws in, uh-huh. the, in the basic plotting. You know, like there's um, one that they pulled out in a video called After Hours that cracked 
Trek does, where it's the overall idea that the Jedi are very bad at their jobs in Star Wars. <laughs> and so the prequels are the story of the Jedi realizing they have been kidnapping children in a bad way all of this time, <laughs> and they need to fix it. One of the things that was very hard for us about the prequels was that... They were more mature than we give them credit for. Maybe, maybe not. But I think setting up these things that looked very shiny and impressive and saying they don't work, you know, that it is fundamentally about saying, like, the force was out of balance is interesting. When I first saw those movies, I thought that they were the most terrible. Yes. Um, (laughs) But I recently rewatched them, and they are medium terrible, but with, like, cool ideas in them. Like, they were at a transition point in our relationship to moral ambiguity in sci-fi and fantasy. Like, it was before Game of Thrones. Um, The Game of Thrones is the thing that really got us to a point where we could, like, accept, like, by splitting up perspective, it means you can't have a clear sense of good and evil. There aren't right side, bad side people. In every situation you're having to understand people are just doing what's right for them. And, like, something like Dune which also really yeah. explores that when the movie came out in 84 or whatever, people were like, what the fuck is that? Because we were just used to very Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, good and evil. But that scene where Anakin slices off Mace Windu's arm after his like full seduction by the emperor is like so great. I wish it were a more mature movie. You know, <laughs> I, I wish it had been able to play with like bigger ideas when the emperor was sort of like getting into Anakin's head. But there's this way that like, I think George Lucas always just thinks that he's making movies for six-year-olds. Yeah. It was hard to accept the prequels as interesting because the acting was directed in such a strange way. Everyone was very sort of buttoned down and flat a lot of the time. And so that leads me to think like, oh, well, if the acting's kind of flat, it's because the material is nothing. So that's why. Well, yeah. I mean, it was them saying a lot of pointless things in front of green screens. And it is, I feel sorry (laughs) for Natalie Portman because like she's given us so much in so many situations. Yeah, Yeah. And I feel like that just gave her no opportunities. And poor Hayden Christensen. Oh, man. It's a also a set of films where I feel like I'm just exploring them purely from a, I need to change this because the story frustrated me so much. Yeah. But I am also, I'm a white heterosexual male, and so I have a very easy time just finding people to identify with in it and don't even worry about that with that kind of story. And then I miss other stuff. It is interesting, those things that are bad but capture you enough that you want to play around with what's going on there. Yeah, yeah. That brings us very neatly to a television show called Entourage. Okay. And, uh, and you talk about it in, in your book along with the comeback as far as them both being very interesting views of L.A. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, Entourage is a great example of something that is a comedy only in the Aristotelian sense of, in the end, things are better, you know? Right. Rather than, like, King Lear's daughter dies and we're all sad. Yeah. yeah. And, like, um, <laughs> there's something interesting about realizing the nihilism of playing with the cheat codes on because, like, Entourage – I mean, things are always better. Like, ah, oh, Vinny Chase. Like, you know, having to check in with Vinny Chase at, at 47 and realize what's gone wrong. But the thing is, an entourage story would still be, and then he got to do a bigger action movie. Yeah. And I, like, don't know what he wants, and I don't know if he knows what happiness is. Because um, like, things only go well in the show if people haven't seen it. Yes. Like, there will be some very, very brief tension maybe earlier yeah. on, and then... 
it will resolve itself often with just like a cell phone call. Yes. His boys were loyal to him and he was loyal to his boys. (laughs) So they were all happy where however goofy the comeback is. Like, its character is someone we know here in Los Angeles, and she's somebody who's, like, struggling to get up to a bigger, better place in Hollywood and failing to recognize the beautiful home and beautiful life that she has because she's always focused on something a little bit better. And I think that's the loveliest kind of comedy because it keeps showing you somebody fall down but into a safe, well-padded space where (laughs) everything's going to be fine. And I think that that's so much what L.A. is. But and, and for and for people who don't know the comeback, just in case, like it's starring Lisa Kudrow from from Friends also, and then yeah. it's sort of a fictionalized version of her yeah. making a comeback within a show where she is making a comeback in real life too, kind of. But yeah. but at the same time, is this magnificent criticism of the way that we make television comedy? Yeah, like it is shitting so hard on the type of comedy that made Lisa Kudrow, uh, <laughs> and shitting so hard on the type of comedy that we evolved into in sort of reality shows, housewife shows, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then the, the second season of it, doing such a good job of shitting on the not funny, dark half hours of the sort of like Atlanta or Master of None model. Um, right. Where and, maybe it's more artistic than funny. Right. Often. And I just love, the show is just so unrepentant about criticizing how, the TV that we love. Um, <laughs> and I think that that's beautiful. When you write about Entourage in your book, you talk about how so many artists have tried to document L.A. And they yeah. always find some sort of realistic or gritty element to it. And then Entourage is just this, like, perfect myth where yes. everything works all the time. And the thing is, <laughs> but the thing is, is that, like, no one would be obsessed with L.A. if it weren't for that idea. And it's why I have to respect Entourage, because it did sort of, like, yeah. make this, like, essentialized elixir of what people think is great about Los Angeles. And I think that there's something a little bit boring about trying to do the, yeah, but there are sad homeless people on Victory Boulevard. And, like, it's true, <laughs> but they are drier and happier than the sad homeless people in Minneapolis. You know, (laughs) Um, it is, don't you think, weird to live in a place that people had this weird vision of when they were six or seven and the way it fucks with their head. I remember when I told my niece, who is now 17, but when she was like five or six, she was telling me that she wanted to win a contest she would get to ride in a wimo and she would get oh. to go see uh, Sweet Life of Zach and Cody in Hollywood. And oh, man. I was like, well, <laughs> I know people. I could just take you to a, like a, a, taping, sh- a yeah. taping of yeah. Sweet Life of, of Zach and Cody. And I was like, I live in, and she was like, you live in Hollywood? Because <laughs> to her, it was like, a concept. It was Valhalla. It was Elysium. People love to romance the way that it is fucked up that, oh, these people are trying to live in a dream. It's like, yeah, they're trying to live in a dream. It's pretty cool. Um, (laughs) I'm like, and the the better thing about Valerie Cherish is she lives in the valley, the functional version of the dream. (laughs) (laughs) Right, where there are certain freeways that can bring you to it from time to time. Exactly, but you're always going to get parking, you know? Right. You're never going to have to fight with some, like, 22-year-old with a guitar for a parking (laughs) spot. It's interesting when people come here on, in like a vacationy way, like what are you planning on? Are you going to watch a sitcom be taped? What are you going to do? Which is why I love 
Lisa Vanderpump's restaurants because Lisa Vanderpump's restaurants and the reality shows around them create the equivalent of a Disney character breakfast for Midwestern moms. <laughs> like you go and you pay too much for a bad meal, but also Jack's may be there. You know, Stasi may be there. And, and, and for people who don't know Lisa Vanderpump's like reality show lineage, I think she has her own show and she came from another show. Yes, she was yeah. a real housewife of Beverly Hills. Okay. She got the show Vanderpump Rules, which is about the drama of the people who are at her restaurant, Sir, I believe. And you can just go to this restaurant in life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just sitting there, but it, <laughs> but it creates a point of sort of like penetration. One of the things that people have really hungered for, like the world of fan fiction of headcanon and all of that was like, how do you integrate yourself into this thing that means so much to you, but you are distanced from? And I, there is something yeah. really great about the way that we have created more penetrable media. For a while, there was a reality show where if you won it, you would then get to go beyond Glee. And I think that's where we got Alex Newell from. But like, you know, the fact that yeah. we have created these contests, which victory means becoming a famous or part <laughs> of the firmament is so like classical, you know, like. Yeah. Or even like the basic one of Kelly Clarkson won the first American Idol and now judges the voice. Right. Right. Like um, she, she progressed up to doing the thing she had done, kind of. You they know? just did the same thing with Project Runway. Christian Siriano is going to take over for um, Tim Gunn. And he's he, a designer from previous. Yes. Seasons. From a, from a previous wow. season. Okay. Yeah. And it is an interesting process. Or, like, I, I deeply love the way that, like, the minute someone gets kicked off of RuPaul's Drag Race, they are a beloved member of the firmament of drag queens, and Ru honors them completely. Like, before that point, <laughs> Ru is telling them what they should be doing wrong and pushing them. And then after that, it's like, no pork chop. You are will always be honored amongst us. Aww. Pork chop is the first queen to ever be thrown off. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I assumed it was a nickname, but that's good to know. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's almost uh, it's almost mythological, right? Like it's almost it like a myth where oh, they got in this fight with Zeus and then they were thrown into the stars and right. now they're up there. And it's <laughs> and it's very interesting, and it's interesting watching the way that YouTube has integrated itself into that, where there is this democracy, and it doesn't take a fancy person coming and plucking you. It can just be millions of regular people deciding that your description of your sadness today is a good description of sadness today. <laughs> <laughs> Like there's so much media we have access to now that I feel like oftentimes we will watch something for a while before we realize it's not quite for us or it's just not quite our thing. Well, it's interesting that there is so much media, but there are still so few sort of like like spheres or worlds that like truly captivate imaginations and allow for sort of like common ground imaginations. Oh, like yeah. the way that uh, Harry Potter Everybody knows that world, essentially, even if you haven't read the books. Just the idea of creating something like Pottermore that would, like, officially sort you so that it wasn't just a speculation yeah. of your own, but it was – I was stunned to discover where Pottermore sorted me. Would you like really? to speculate? Did you did you land Gryffindor? I did not land Gryffindor. Oh, okay. Three more guesses. Yes. Uh, <laughs> did, did you land Slytherin? I landed Slytherin. All right. Were I, you upset about it? I was surprised because I had always assumed I would be a Ravenclaw. Yeah. Um, but then my niece, who was then like 13 or 14, was like, no, you're results-oriented. Like, you are – you're about getting the job. Because I'm constantly yeah. lecturing her about like, do the thing that is required to have the right grade. Like, not cheat and stuff, but right. like, understand the task that you are trying to – 
to take care of and yeah. then just get that done. Be purposeful. Yes. Yeah. Are you a Ravenclaw? I am a Ravenclaw, but with strong Hufflepuff. I took, I think like uh, it was some off-site type test yes. like Pottermore's and it showed you percentages oh. and I, I was real close. Uh, well, I mean, in, until it's an official Pottermore sorting, right, it's I also... don't care. Um, <laughs> but uh, my niece is a very proud Hufflepuff. I love that so much about her. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> as far as like inserting ourselves into stuff, uh, I do, I, I want to talk about one entourage theory. I know, okay. I know we're sort of past that show. Yes. But um, I... Ended up seeing a lot of Entourage because it can it contains some nudity, uh-huh. so I was very excited about it at the time. Yes. you know. But then I realized I had watched a lot of a show that didn't make any sense to like what I wanted otherwise. Yeah, like who I was, and it ended up with a theory that Entourage is basically an elaborate Truman Show type prank on the four actual actors who are Vinny and the crew, not Ari, because he he comes out of it great. The characters, not the actors. So, like, um, not Adrian Grenier, but Vinny Chase. But and No, it, it's a prank on Adrian Grenier oh, okay. and uh, the other actors. In, like, we all pretended like this was a good show that deserved Emmys and stuff, and they didn't yeah. know? There's a lot of layers, but it's basically, the first layer is we just have the actual show. And then beneath that, there is the show is teaching us how Hollywood works. Because, uh-huh. like, for me, it was the first time I learned what an agent is or what yeah. a manager is. Yeah. You know? And then there's a layer of the show's so poorly done, it's it seems like it's kind of kidding as in general, dramatically, yeah. you know? And so then beneath that, you realize that Mark Wahlberg just found guys to temporarily prop up as a prank. Yeah. That's really, really funny. It would be very dark, but yeah, like he picked on those guys and everybody else is succeeding and profiting. Can I tell you a similar theory of mine that was formed in the past two weeks? Oh, please. Yeah. Okay. What has Ashton Kutcher been doing over the course of the past five or six years? I think he, I think like apps and stuff, right? Well, and also the ranch on Netflix. Which, the ranch on Netflix. Which may or may not exist. Has anyone seen it? <laughs> the minute that Banksy went through half of a shredder. Okay. At the auction, as somebody who used to be a writer on Punked, it was a terrible year of my life. Oh, wow. I was like, what if Ashton Kutcher is just Banksy? Like, what if, um, <laughs> what if he, crazy like a fox and understanding that, like, just going to Silicon Valley and waiting for those boys to give him stock options and things was, he'd made enough money off of that. What if he just decided to go and become the greatest guerrilla artist of all time. Because what Banksy is doing is just punked for people <laughs> with art history degrees. Right, with like big stencils. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yes. Also, I have a friend who Banksy painted something on the door of one of his dad's buildings in New Jersey. And now they just have that door and can sell it whenever they want to for like huge amounts of money. And like, why is this more valuable than Bitcoin? You know, like <laughs> why is a stencil of a little girl with a heart balloon any more valuable than Bitcoin? We've just all collectively like agreed upon it. <laughs> yeah, there's a, uh, there's a Kurt Vonnegut novel about a painter, but there's one part in it where he just butts in as the author and says that like all fine art is basically an agreement among rich people to yeah. continue to get rich yeah. and, like, and like tell the poor they don't know how to communicate. Oh, that's beautiful. Which is a very mean theory on the part of the rich, you know? Yeah. But, uh, but I don't know. Maybe it fits Banksy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so where do you get this theory about entourage? I just couldn't figure out 
why else they made it other than to just make money. Because I just kept bumping on, no, somehow this is going to turn dramatic or dark or something. I was basically going to Blockbuster Video and grabbing either DVDs from seasons of very interesting dramas because I wanted to watch a lot of that or Entourage because maybe it had nudity. What? And then and then I was so frustrated with like all these gripping things and then this show that refused to be like fundamentally. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, maybe it's just this big old prank. That would make sense. For a period of time, I lived with these guys who would like obsessively watch Entourage and just thought it was the coolest thing ever. Yeah. They would laugh at it like it was funny. And there, the idea of creating a show that is just unchallenging lifestyle porn exclusively so that you could place products that you have a business interest in does seem compelling to me to just be like convince them to buy shoes that you make you know (laughs) thinking of that Vanderpump restaurant people can go to I remember being relatively new to LA and going past Dash, like the yeah. Kardashian story. Yeah. And I, I knew that existed and yet I didn't believe it was real somehow. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even though the show kind of sells the uh, the store. Yeah. And getting to have that little taste of magic, like you might be in the world of those people whose lives seem so great. Like, Can anything yeah. bad really happen to you in Dash? You know, no, like, aren't not. you protected by some of the same sources, forces that protect Chloe? Um, <laughs> uh, can I tell you about one of the most jarring experiences of my Los Angeles life? Sounds great. Yeah. Okay. So I was watching an episode of The Hills and it was taking place at a cafe where there was an open mic and that I had been to before. Mm-hmm. And one of, I think, Spencer's sister went up and she ordered a boba. And I was like, I didn't know they had boba. So the next time I was there, I went up and I was like, can I get a boba? And they were like, we don't have boba. And I was like, but that girl ordered it on the hills. And they were like, yeah, like four people have done that this week. And <laughs> oh no, it was just this really interesting thing of like, Becoming aware of what the fictionalization of a reality show is, like, I was sure that they encouraged them to say particular things, but the notion that, like, an art guy went and got boba somewhere else and brought it to that cafe so that they could do that just so she could be ordering something that seemed cooler than the stuff that was offered there um, (laughs) was, like, a truly magnificent moment where I became an Angelino, you know? Like, after that moment... It, things changed. What a particular lie. Yeah. What, what, a, a- what a particular lie. <laughs> and I do think that this is a town that is like as much as any <laughs> of the sci-fi we have discussed is built on particular lies. Like we said, it's that idea. It's that draw. It's that. Just last night, what a vampire facial was, was explained to me, which is they draw out your blood and then they remove the plasma from it and then they re-inject the plasma into your face and it's supposed to help. And like, does it do anything? Yes or no? I don't know. It's just that we've decided to make this magical fiction the force or an Alohomora spell or whatever. (laughs) And we get to feel like we live in a world that is governed by different rules. Right, because it's driven by enough industry that I guess there's some, like, fun can fall off the back of the truck kind of thing. Like, there's room for that. And also just, like, there is, in the same way that, like, religion has had practical value in just the way that it is, like, seen or merited by other people around you, Mm -hmm. where, like, maybe your life isn't better because God is blessing you for being pious, but the people around you are like, oh, he's really got it together. Here... I am a lady who gets vampire facials means something to other people, even if it's not doing anything. 
our world runs on stories. Um, yeah. And this town particularly runs on stories. And those stories are powerful. The Eero Home Wi-Fi system brings you a fast, reliable connection in every room of the house because life is too short for bad Wi-Fi. The second-generation Eero and Eero Beacon allow you to build a Wi-Fi system that's more perfectly tailored to the home than ever before. And when you add Eero Plus, you'll get total network protection with the ability to block malicious and unwanted content across your entire network. Because by checking the sites you visit against a database of millions of known threats, Eero Plus prevents you from accidentally visiting malicious sites without slowing anything down. Eero Plus automatically tags sites that contain violent, illegal, or adult content, so you can choose what your kids can and cannot visit right from the Eero app. Doesn't that make parenting easy? Yes, it does. Good. I mainly want to tell you about Eero's ability as a network, because believe it or not, I spend a lot of time on the internet. Like it's my job. Ha 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 ha. No, it is my job. This is very serious. Also, it's not serious. We're having fun. And it is fun to have a, a good, clear, easy Wi-Fi connection, especially because I don't know about you, but you might live in a place with walls. And walls really make traditional Wi-Fi difficult if you're between one of those uh, and the router. And uh, Eero lets you sort of network your entire space in a very easy, very intuitive way. And I've enjoyed doing it in my own. And I'm uh, dialing up things faster. Isn't that nice? Isn't that great? So get $100 off the Eero base unit and two beacons package and a year of Eero Plus by visiting Eero.com slash cracked and entering code cracked at checkout. Alex, how's that spelled? That's E-E-R-O dot com slash cracked and code cracked at checkout. There's a cracked article called Four Secret Messages That Turn Bad Movies Into Genius Ones by J.M. McNabb. Uh, and he picks out a theory about the movie Jurassic World. Okay. It's not the latest Jurassic Park, but it's the new, yeah. almost reboot. And the theory is basically that like that movie is not about the text of it. It's about the process of people trying to keep blockbusters going long after they happened and long after the original magic. Because uh, it, it, like, the movie even has Jake Johnson's character is in the control room of the, of the park, and he's wearing a Jurassic Park T-shirt and saying the first park was legit is a direct verbatim quote from it. And then it, it builds to dinosaurs from the original movie fighting the dinosaur from the new movie. You, oh, you can read it as it's just a story about trying to like just endlessly suck the life out of Jurassic Park as a Jurassic Park suck the life out movie. Oh, that is very interesting. Yeah. That is very interesting. What are the other what are the other way, uh, theories that make bad movies good? Do you know the movie Barbed Wire? Yes. This one, it's a little bit off that premise just because it's the actual things in it are interesting. It was a comic book movie based on a female hero long before we were getting those. Yeah. And it's also Casablanca. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> like, she's Humphrey Bogart, Pamela Anderson, and is going through the movie just trying to do everything he does while and dealing nice. with that heroic journey. And is also, every time the viewer kind of leers at her, she then kills, <laughs> like points a gun. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah. Can I tell you my sort of like favorite? It, it's like a collective theory to shift perspective on movies that I already love that some people are, but that some people are very dismissive of. Romantic comedies are all horror films that could happen to you. Like they are all deeply terrifying prospects that are narrowly averted under the same terms of a horror film. So like Sleepless in Seattle, what if you had a fiance 
and then you heard a voice on the radio and you were certain that you loved that person more than the person you were getting ready to settle down with? Like, what if you had a best friend in your life who was like there to support you and took care of you? And then when you were 32, you accidentally had sex with him and then you guys could not be friends again. There, What's that, that second story? Which movie is oh, that? Oh, When Harry Met Sally. When Harry Met Sally, okay. It was just years ago, I was working at a little cable <laughs> network and I was writing a rom-com and all of my friends were writing zombie movies. And I was like, to one of my other friends, I was like, is there something wrong with me? Why, why are they writing zombie mo- movies and I am not? And he was like, because the scariest thing that they can imagine is an arm coming through the wall. And the scariest thing that you can imagine is never really being understood. And <laughs> that's what rom-coms are so frequently is watching somebody in the clutches of a boring life <laughs> trying desperately to escape. That's amazing. Yeah. Especially with that Sleepless in Seattle example, like I have a friend who says that in basically every rom-com, the previous partner who's not good enough is just a normal partner. Yeah. They're a realistic person. And then the events of the movie are like a fantastical person comes into their life. No, I mean, romantic comedies (laughs) have by and large taught us to romanticize people with borderline personality disorder. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, (laughs) Do you all remember the movie The Baxter? Uh, I know of it. I haven't seen it. It was Guys from the State, and it was about the life of the boring boyfriend who got left. And I didn't really like it as much as I should. I've always wanted to write a movie about just basically sassy ethnic friend from romantic comedies, like her figuring out how to make the story about her instead of it always being about the beautiful white woman who's next to her. Well, sort of like Rupert Everett in My Best Friend's Wedding yes. gets to take over the movie, but fully. Looking at a, in your book, it's it's a beautiful chapter, but I uh, how, how comfortable are you talking about uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance. Oh, go for it. Because it's a, uh, I have seen Westerns and a lot of them often. And usually the only like meta text I'd ever been presented with is Westerns are about democracy and justice. Yeah. And like that's, and it's, it's a story about guys figuring it out. We just boiled it down to two guys in hats. And so it's easier. Well, there know? is something really neat about the fact that I always hated Westerns and then sort of realizing they are largely about jurisprudence, but they are so frequently about a romanticization of violence as the way of solving a judicial question. You know, it's about (laughs) the absence of the rule of law and sort of masculinity having to govern that. And that's why women rarely show up in Westerns. And when they do, they are things to be protected or fought. Like they're they're property. Have you seen McCabe and Mrs. Miller? Uh, No, I haven't seen that. McCabe and Mrs. Miller is so good. It's Robert Altman... Um, Isn't it like uh, Warren Beatty, Julie Christie? Yes. Yeah. And so it is pushing the physical boundaries of what a Western can be. It's in Washington. It's uh, pushing the like chronological boundaries of what a Western could be. It's like 1910. And it's about them putting together a brothel to service the men who are in this like logging town. And there's something so wonderful about the fact that it isn't pushing towards what's right. I think when it comes to um, Western as story of democracy, like High Noon is always that thing, is sort of like the the pinnacle, the apex of our conversation about that. Yeah. For those of you who have not read my book, when I was like at the beginning of the process of writing my book, I was trying to figure out how to write about my dad who had died uh, like a year beforehand. 
And so I realized, because I wanted it to be a book that was also about pop culture, I would watch his favorite movie, which is a thing I had never seen. And it's a Western from 1962 called The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. It is very much something that is about constructions of law and governance. I watched this movie and was like, didn't have an idea of what I would talk about. And then this movie ended up being an astoundingly relevant exploration of the different ways that my dad and I saw the world. It's essentially like a young lawyer played by Jimmy Stewart and sort of like a guy from the West who understands how things get done played by John Wayne. And the two of them sort of like with these competing worldviews. And in the end, basically... Jimmy Stewart tries to play the game of masculine violence and it sort of gets propped up by by John Wayne. Because you also, and you write so richly about this in your book, but also in general about uh, your hometown, Yuba City, in, yes. in Northern California, north of Sacramento. Yes. Uh, relatively rural and blue collar, and and your dad was maybe more of a piece of that. And yeah. And you felt like uh, you were not fitting in as much. Right. Yeah. And there is an interesting way that, like, being from a place in California that is not one of the places in California that matters is a special kind of lawlessness that maybe other people don't understand. Because you're like, when you're from a little town in Montana, all man Montana has to do is take care of little towns, you know? Right, right, Um, right. But, like, in California, it's like no one is paying attention to you. Like, they are trying to solve what's going on in Southern California, maybe paying attention to San Francisco. But, like, nobody's getting to worrying about like Yuba City. But uh, yeah, my my dad was just sort of like, he just wanted to be a regular guy and fit in and be normal. And I was trying to sort of like, I was very much internalizing the lessons of the big wider world and law and how it's supposed to be. And then watching that movie, it like really hit home, but also annoyed me because it is this very 1962, well, at the end of the day, you do have to pick up a gun kind of movie. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> I had seen it, and I think High Noon probably the same like week, and they were yeah. pitched to me as, High Noon's the most screened at the White House because presidents love it. You yeah. know, justice. And that was... The only reading I had been given on Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is Lee Marvin is awesome at being evil, and then John yeah. Wayne is the the frontier forceful element, and then Jimmy Stewart is the law, but learns in the end you need forceful too. Right. And that makes me mad because there's no space for women and Jews in a world like that. <laughs> oh, no. Um, <laughs> seeing a like 19th century set urban Western in some way would be interesting. To see something that like takes the tools of Western but applies them to something going on in Boston would be very oh. interesting. Are you familiar with the movie State in Maine? I've, I saw it a long time ago. Yeah, uh, I think that that movie is the closest we come to that in that it is uh, Hollywood people going into a little New Hampshire town to shoot some stuff and then a bunch of stuff goes wrong. And the movie ends with essentially a bag of money that was gotten from a product integration being handed from one Los Angeles Jew to a like New Hampshire regular person and that's solving the problem. And I come from a very non-traditional Jewish background, but I thought that it was a beautiful tribute to the power of Judaism of, <laughs> of like a worldview and like, let's get this done. Let's make sure everybody's happy. Let's just keep things moving along. And it is sort of like a different kind of 
embracing the limitations of the law. You know, <laughs> it's a different kind of power play. Like there's, I mean, why, why is That's, shooting somebody more noble than handing them $800,000? <laughs> That's such a rich read on that movie. Uh, That's, yeah. I, I like that movie a lot. It's yeah, it's like Judaism making things right and like how America works, you know, like, yeah, well, we can all agree on this product placement. Right. We can do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I think we as Americans can forget what a for sale country we're in, like just what a, a commercialized, like money rules everything kind of country that we're in. Uh, like you've been to San Francisco? I have. Yeah, briefly. It is cool to go to other cities that like were founded around the same time, like Sydney, um, because you go to Sydney and Sydney was built by an empire to do a thing. And San Francisco was built by shopkeepers to do a thing. And like, oh, yeah. it means that the fortresses are less impressive. But also there's a way that like shopkeepers know what they need a town to do, where like Sydney really feels like the British Empire was like, okay, make sure the Dutch can't steal this. And that was <laughs> all they were worried about, you know? Right. If the Germans float through fire. Right. Otherwise, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What else is going on there? <laughs> I don't know. Where San Francisco is like, all right, we need to sell shovels. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard, um, uh, we'll, we'll link it. There's a podcast called 99% Invisible. Uh-huh. Uh, that's sort of all about design and, and that in history. Uh, but they have a whole episode about how San Francisco was built uh, partly on like filling in water to make more land. Yeah. Because they just needed more room. And they would often use ships that they had basically, a ship would come from the East Coast of the U.S. a long way around to bring people to it. And then they would just plant the ship into the ground to make more land for the city. Oh, that's because it didn't wonderful. Need to go back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is very strange in as a Californian because like all of California was built in 1964. Like <laughs> essentially nothing right. happened here between the gold rush and the first McDonald's. Hollywood kind right. of, but nothing else matters. And that you have this one city that is not just from the 19th century, but also had money rain on it for the entire 19th century is this like weird experience as a child. Yeah, like Mark Twain had a hotel room in essentially a high rise. Meanwhile, L.A. was just a dusty street. Yeah. It's crazy. Going back a bit to Yuba City, in the book, you talk about how it's an amazing sort of place demographically. And one yeah. of the reasons is that there's a very large Punjabi population. Yes. And and that leads you into some great stuff about Bendit Like Beckham and also football movies. Yes. Yeah. My little hometown in Northern California has had a very significant Punjabi Sikh population since the like 1900s. 19 teens. It was, I guess, started out as railroad workers uh, who then realized that it was a really good agricultural place that reminded them of home. And then people started coming over before the Asian exclusion laws really limited the degree to which people from Asia could come to the United States. Yeah. And there's a lot of things like uh, people don't realize the first Indian American member of Congress was this guy named Dalip Singh in like Fresno in the 1950s. Um, oh my God, really? Yeah. And they are also not the South Asian immigrants that you think of from like the 1980s who were like highly educated doctors and engineers and and that kind of thing. Like they are farmers, like they are old school. I describe them in the book as like the rednecks of South Asia, but it's like this weird and interesting dynamic because my hometown is always conceiving of itself as just sort of like an old school, working class, pretty white town because we don't have a large black population. Mm -hmm. But like 
uh, many of the people who are defining this as a very white town are themselves Punjabi or Latino <laughs> because it's it's California and um, that's what you've got. And it was really funny because growing up, there was like a cable access channel that would just play the cheapest Bollywood movies that they could get because like there were oh, wow. a, a lot of grandmas who just wanted to watch something that was in Punjabi. And so that was playing all over the time. <laughs> that's amazing. And it sort of was this like rich and wonderful world that I didn't see reflected in media in any way, except for, we never got the good Bollywood movies. I cannot emphasize that enough. Oh. It was like, it was <laughs> crap from 1964. Um, <laughs> it did mean that when I did finally get movies that had like Monsoon Wedding or Bandit Like Beckham that had like real Punjabi weddings in them with the number of marigolds and the amount of dancing that, cause like my, my parents' house is like three houses down from uh, a Gurdwara. So like, which is like oh, a Sikh temple. Oh, okay. um, yeah. Weddings and soccer games and field hockey games were like always audible from my house. Like if it was a Saturday or a Sunday, you would just hear sometimes prayers and sometimes just like the cheering of soccer and stuff. <laughs> like in my book, I talk about, I, I hate soccer as much as any American should. I think <laughs> it makes for a better movie than American football just because Sports in movies really needs to be like just musical montages, beautiful musical montages. And football stops too much. Like American football stops too much. If you yeah. go back and watch A League of Their Own, like most of the baseball in that movie is just like music playing over women throwing and hitting. Um, <laughs> soccer is, it is the beautiful game. Like you are able, it's, really, yeah. it's almost like a musical having these moments of like physical activity and excitement that isn't having to add up to some sort of like narrative story where I feel like American football always has like a clear story for every down. What? Oh, we must get seven yards. Oh no, they have pushed us back. Right. It like sets up a story and then you fulfill that story or don't fulfill that story. And it's pretty boring. Um, <laughs> would you like to know what football movie actually did surprise me with its goodness? In the book, you mentioned Johnny Be Good. No, oh, okay. Go I don't. It's, I didn't talk about it in the book. But a couple of years ago, the, like the, the weekend that Robin Williams died, I was driving home and I drove past uh, the New Beverly Cinema, which Quentin Tarantino owns now. Yeah. And they were showing two Robin Williams movies, uh, Moscow on the Hudson and The Best of Times. And I did not think of either of those as being particularly great Robin Williams movies. Yeah. And so I was like, I will watch. And then I watched, and they are both very good Robin Williams movies. Yeah. Moscow on the Hudson is from like 1983, during his like first big film boom. And as a I watched it as a small child, and it was not funny like a Robin Williams movie, and so I didn't think it was good. And then I watched it, and it is a very bleak and wonderful comedy about how in America you at least get to make your own decisions. It is beautiful and bleak. Like the end of that movie is the smallest amount of happiness you can give somebody and still call something a comedy. And it's really wonderful, and he's very good in it. And then The Best of Times is about uh, – it's him and Kurt Russell – and Robin Williams personally lost the big game when they were in high school. And so for their 20-year high school reunion, he's trying to get everybody back together to play the Taft versus Bakersfield game over again. It's a movie about masculinity and, like, wanting to, like, 
have felt that feeling of, of being on the right side of masculinity, which all football movies are like that. I do talk about in the book Oh yeah, like, yeah, yeah. A, about the way that like Rudy and Johnny B. Good are all about these romanticizations of proper masculinity and some guy dreaming that he can like be masculine in the right way. <laughs> but back to the best of times, just the, the choreography in it is good and it manages to tell a good story of football by starting it out with clean football and changing it to dirty football. And because oh, uh, the game kind of falls apart. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, it rains. It uh. rains. And that rain makes all the difference because suddenly there is sliding and movement that is without purpose. And you you feel the chaos a little bit more. And I think that that gets towards the dance that like soccer is just doing on its own. You know, soccer right. moves and flows and the muddiness of what happens in the the best of times because also that gets at the chaotic fun of football, which is not always there. Football is too organized to have chaotic fun and then once you have rain on a football field, then you are more towards being boys fucking around. Yeah. Uh, and that is nice. Bendit like Beckham is is always in this flow of constant movement and it's it's never able to be as agended or simple as sort of uh, football American football is with Rudy in particular I grew up uh, around Chicago uh, mostly raised Catholic yes and Notre Dame is very very important to people in that area because yes. it's right near Indiana there and it has tons of fans who never went there and it's a whole thing and so I saw Rudy on a class bus trip to Springfield, the state capital. Yeah. It was on those little TVs and a coach yes. bus. And I like fell asleep for parts of it and I didn't hear parts of it. But I remember getting to the end of it and thinking, I must have missed like what what makes this happy? Like, this this is a very this is a very difficult movie for me, but I, everybody else was like, that's one of the kindest you know best stories ever. And I love your reading of it because it's such a tragedy. <laughs> People love it so much. It's the worst movie with the worst message. Yeah. This guy devotes the entirety of his life to something he is bad at yeah. and never gets good at. And all he wants is to just get to be participatory and looked upon as sort of like yeah. an equal by these guys who are his physical betters. And he can, at no point in time does he ever state that who he is and what he is good at might matter. Right, no, yeah, he never gains a skill, does he? He no. just gains, like, statistically he tackled somebody and so he played. His, his nobility is his capacity to be respected by the guys who are good at masculinity yeah. because he has spent the entire movie uh, abasing himself to 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 honor them and it's gross and it because and I, I feel like one of the reasons I react to it so much is because like growing up as like a gigantic gay guy there was always this way of like why aren't you trying harder to do this thing why don't you love this thing that you are supposed to love why not commit yourself to giving everything else that you're good at up <laughs> and just trying for this thing. And like, I hate that Rudy isn't even big and strong. Like yeah. there's, there's nothing. He doesn't grow. He it, just survives. He just sur survives and is willing to put up with all of the indignities and hope that at the end, I mean, it's like Rock Candy Mountain in a, in Animal Farm. It's just sort of like, <laughs> it, it, it is this sort of like masculine opiate of the people, this like uh, <laughs> right. vision of you are honored by the football players because you honored them so hard. Um, yeah, wow. And it never questions that there might be a world outside of that. And it never questions that there might be women who are human beings. 
Are there female characters in the movie? Barely. Okay. I, I don't mean, remember any. John Favreau has a girlfriend who he goes off with, and I think that there is a girlfriend who ends up liking Rudy. But if that movie is able to pass the Bechdel test, I would be shocked. Yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I watched Stand By Me recently and realized just how few women talk in that movie. And uh, oh, my friend, probably, Re- yeah. My friend Rebecca, who ca- she, who cares too much about film, was just like, "It is a movie about masculinity," and she was like excusing it for for that reason. But there is a way that in telling coming of age movies, we only tell coming of age movies about masculinity, and it's why I love that Bend It Like Beckham sort of like blends together sexuality and sort of like being able to own and govern your own sexuality, like questions of race and integrating yourself into a colonial power, but also the fear of the ways that that colonial power will be able to accept you. Like people forget that like the fundamental thing holding Jess back is the fact that her dad was a really good cricket player who was never treated as equal by the white guys and who is saying to her essentially like these people will never see you as one of them. Don't try this. Like take the conservative road, just do well on your exams and don't love this thing. And I love that it wraps the gender and the race, but also just so deeply loving soccer into the whole thing. And the idea of like the movie starts out with her Imagining, what if I were Beckham? And that question of whose eyes you feel capable of looking out of is such an interesting thing because we have been taught that white heterosexual men's eyes are the ones that we are all capable of looking through. And it really, it starts out from that place and then makes us look through the eyes of a South Asian woman. It's almost like that movie is just trying to make up for five or six different underserved things all at once in culture. Like they're trying to pack it all into 90 minutes and they kind of do it. But it never feels strained because it's got a story to tell because it just starts out from a place of this Indian girl loves soccer. That brings things into it. There are going to be questions about whether she's gay for Keira Knightley because, you know, when you place women into a sports context, that is a question that comes up. How does she fit into Britain? Like, that's going to come up. And I feel like when you try to pack too many things in for the sake of packing them in, you get movies that are bad or clunky. But, But when you just start out from a question people haven't thought about much before, you're going to raise a number of issues. I almost feel like there's a takeaway for anybody listening who's trying to like write or make a thing that if you, like you say with Bandit Like Beckham, they just start from a story they think is worth telling and yeah. then it ends up covering all these different things well, naturally. I, I do think there is a way that Hollywood can be scared of protagonists who are too interesting. That always gets at me when... Um, you're telling a story and somebody points to something and says, that's too interesting. And what they usually mean by that is it raises questions in too many directions. And to me, that just seems like the starting point for a richer story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In the book also, you talk a bit about as you were sort of discovering stand-up as a medium altogether, you uh, just fell in love with Delirious, the Eddie Murphy uh-huh. special, which is counterintuitive, but it seems like it came from you embraced the good things about it because that was what you had, essentially. Well, I mean, the, the reason that you say it, it seems counterintuitive is because 
Eddie Murphy does start out with sort of like five minutes of some of the most vehemently homophobic material you've ever heard. Yeah. But also like, I didn't know I was gay when I was eight. You know, I was right. just like, this yeah. is good. Like, you know, I saw all of the good things. And in a world where everything he was saying was pretty normal, I'm not knocking on Delirious. I'm knocking on 1983. The thing is, is like, I don't have good, clear articulations of all of the ways that 1983 was coming at me and telling me that being gay was gross. But Delirious is just so crystallized. But one of the reasons it's so crystallized is because I loved it so much, but because it was so representative of the kind of stand-up I loved and, you know, and also inspired so many people uh, that I love. It's like, Chris Rock and Margaret Cho aren't possible without Eddie Murphy, you know? Right. Like, there's a reason. I mean, I don't know if Chris Rock ever wore a leather suit in a special. And, like, I, but you, Margaret Cho, like, wearing a leather suit to explain, like, I am in the tradition of Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, is really important. And I think that that's such a beautiful, like, the work of showing ownership over something that m maybe would have excluded you and saying, this is my story too. I mean, Bendit like Beckham is doing that. It is saying for th sure. this, yeah. this sport that was invented at a British boys school belongs to me because you fucking came to my country and brought me here. <laughs> so this is my country too. And this is my sport too, you know? Yeah. Linda, and then as people are at home just watching things, uh, what, what's the easiest way to kind of get in the mindset of, I'm going to make this mine, like if, if it's not quite uh, working for them? That's interesting um, yeah. because I think that that is the core of, of gay male culture is like finding stuff that's not for you and making it for you. Are you at all familiar with the movies Mildred Pierce or uh, Mommy Dearest? Basic plot. Okay. Yeah. Mildred Pierce is the story of a long-suffering mother who selflessly bakes pies to buy nice things for her daughter, and then her daughter fucks her husband uh, or her boyfriend. And um, Mommy Dearest is the story of a long-suffering Joan Crawford who selflessly makes uh, women's weepy films to buy nice things for her daughter, who then writes a mean book about her. Um, <laughs> you have two stories that are nearly identical in structure. But when gay men at a gay bar watch Mildred Pierce, they keep over-identifying with the daughter because they're not supposed to. And when they watch Mommy Dearest, they over-identify with the mom because they're not supposed to. And I think the best way of showing ownership of something is looking at a villain and saying, what's their story? How, like, what are they doing? Like, how do we look at this story and say that they're maybe the smartest, most right person here? You know, yeah. like the the best is like uh, Hansel and Gretel. Those children eat that witch's house. They eat that witch's house. <laughs> Why shouldn't she try to cook them? Right. And there's a housing crisis. Exactly. Like, come on. Well, and also it's the, it's the kind of pro-villain take I would expect from a Slytherin. <laughs> so I don't know. Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Guy Branham for being a font of pop culture, information, comedy, and, and just everything else. What a pleasure. And now that you've enjoyed the show, why don't you enjoy the food notes where we have a wealth of things that Guy and I referenced in this episode. And in particular, we have his memoir. Again, it is called My Life as a Goddess, a memoir through unpopular culture. It blew me away. If you, if you read one chapter of it to start out, there's a really incredible part about his relationship with his father and the movie 
the man who shot Liberty Valance. And, and I'm super grateful he was willing to touch on it today because it is very, very emotionally significant for him. And the essay on it has so much to it. And I hope you'll check it out. And also just side tip, see the movie, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. It's directed by John Ford. It stars John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart and Lee Marvin. You know from that roster, it might be the best Western ever made. And I I know I'm going to get hate from the world's high noon fanboys and Clint Eastwood stands, but I stand by it. I feel it. Here's something else I stand by, the excellent song Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. It is our theme music. Our episode was engineered by Devin Bryant and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media, a place where I'm about to get flooded with messages about the searchers, probably, and Shane, and Butch Cassidy, and you know what? Do what you're going to do. I'm going to go see McCabe and Mrs. Miller, like I said I would when I talked to Guy, okay? How about that? Also, I do do other things on social media, uh, like, uh, you know, keep talking about when I was on Jeopardy. How about that? Uh, my Twitter account is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmitzstagram. And I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. It's got my show dates and my newsletter and more. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.